2: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome, everyone. Glad to have you back. This is the Smart People Podcast. I am Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. We're the two hosts. Hopefully you know that by now because you have been listening to every episode. Every episode of Season 2, so it's only been... this is the second one so far, but... Episode 2. There's another 50 you should check out. They were as cool in terms of guests, but sound quality is definitely... Going up because today, today it was a great day for John. It was. He got to. Uh, it was like Christmas game early. He geeked out and purchased. We got new mics, some new. Um, what are these things called? Arms. I guess boom arms. Boom mic arms. arms. Yeah. yeah. And it's a lot of fun. The studio is coming together. I think we're gonna run out of money here soon, but so it'll be half a studio. But That's uh, okay. But it works. So thanks for joining us. You can check us out more at our website, which is www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. We write up a little bit about everyone we interview. We post the podcast there, as well as, obviously, you can get it at iTunes. And make sure when you go to iTunes, subscribe to us so you don't have to worry about checking in every week. And also leave us a little rating. Five stars is the only uh, rating we accept. So please make sure to click on that and then uh, leave a little comment.
2: Yeah, and this week we're excited. We're talking to Dr. Charlie Pellerin. He is or was the director of astrophysics at NASA. Kind of a
1: big deal it sounds like. I huh? don't even that the director how of are you, astro-
2: How are you the director of astrophysics? That's- I got to tell
1: you something right now. I had to Wikipedia astrophysics. I don't blame you. I did that <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> I mean, I know it's badass, but like that's yeah. about all I know. So Yeah,
2: but but Charlie started off as a investigator at Goddard Space Flight Center. Then he transferred to NASA. Eight short years later, he was named the director of astrophysics. He dealt with a dozen scientific satellite launches. This included
1: the Hubble Telescope. Maybe you've heard of it. Don't don't give away everything. Pretty pretty big deal. We dive into the Hubble thing in the interview, and it's crazy. Like you really want to hear what happened and what he had to say about that.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, Charlie wrote a book called How NASA Builds Teams, Mission Critical, Soft Skills for Scientists, Engineers, and Project Teams. You can find information on him at nasateambuilding.com. He gives everything away for free. I mean, except for the book, obviously. But there's tons of great information on his website. You can take tests. There's training modules, all kinds of stuff on how to build better teams. Charlie was awesome. We really enjoyed it. And Chris, I mean, I know space is one
1: of your... I mean I like it. I love your interest. Well, I just like the fact that we don't know anything about it. So that's actually a good good thing you mentioned it. Um, for everybody about to listen to the interview, the first, you know, 10 minutes or so, we 10-15 minutes we just talk about space in general and the space program, putting people on Mars. Private sector being the one that's doing all the space exploration now. And it's really cool because the director of NASA, basically, um, I mean, he knows everything, right? So we get a a cool inside view there. Then the second half of the interview, we talk about his book and what it all means, you know, how NASA builds teams. What does that mean? Why does he know? And basically, I'm not going to give it away, but he came up with all this because he screwed up in a huge way. And He's now giving it away. I mean, he's like Roach said aside from, yeah, the book's not free, but all the information, slides, everything, it's on his website. And Charlie was an awesome guy. He's just super nice. You can tell by his demeanor, and he has a lot of cool stories. So I uh, really hope you enjoy this. We're going to turn it over here to the interview in a second. Make sure to check us out on Facebook and or follow us on Twitter at Smart People Pod. Um, we love hearing from you guys. You can email us. You know, Let us know what you think. Send us guests that you'd like to hear from. We've been, you know, contacting people like crazy and we have a silly lineup coming up. Good things happening with the podcast. Now, uh, tune in your brain a little bit. Learn something about space and management skills, team building. Here is Dr. Charles Pellerin. All right, uh, Charlie, you know, first... I do wanna dive into your book. Obviously that's the the main thing we wanna talk about, but I would be doing our listeners a disservice because we are the smart people podcast and you were the you know, you are the former director of astrophysics at NASA. Did I get that all right?
3: Yep, for 10 years.
1: Okay, and so in my mind, and I'm sure everybody else's, that puts you at the upper echelon of smart people. So first, I kind of just want to <laughs> you know, pick your brain a little bit about um, space in general and just crazy stuff, things that you might know. So the, the first thing I wanted to ask you, actually, is about private funding that's now you know going on rather than uh, government funding for space exploration. I want to get your take on that, see if... You know, you think that that's a good thing, and if you think we're going to see better results uh, in the private sector versus you know more of the the government going after it.
3: Well, look, uh, I'm sure you're talking about SpaceX. That's the big, uh, exactly popular event. Exactly. The government bought bought that actually. It was not. They may have had some of his money. I don't know how much, but we we bought that from them. And I, look, I, I talk like I still work there. I guess I think I do. Kind <laughs> <of that. laughs> uh, and, and most people don't know, but since NASA was founded, 90% of our money has gone outside the agency on contracts always. Okay. So uh, all, the, all the rockets in the past have been built by private companies. NASA is really a, a technical management organization. We don't build much. So uh, what's different here is, I think, an attempt to <clears throat> gain more efficiency by not having the government oversight.
2: Ah.
3: Uh. And... We'll have to see as time goes on how well this works. Uh, there's no doubt about it. You can do it cheaper. We'll have to see if it's like you know. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want to fly in an airplane with no FAA regulations, and uh, I'm not sure that the, the <laughs> banking system benefited from too little regulation.
1: Very true.
3: But it's an interesting adventure, and I wish them all the well. Uh, you know, NASA's also done a lot of work for them. Uh, by the way, I don't mean in any way to diminish what they do. I just want to get the record straight. I was at Ames Research Center <clears throat> last week, and they told me they designed and tested the heat shield for them so this is not all that different from what we've done in the past except there's not you know to, to be fair to the to, to them uh, the government puts an awesome burden burden of paperwork on our contractors so <laughs> i'm I'm guessing they could probably do this for i'm not throwing a number out uh sixty seventy percent of what we'd we pay if we contract under a cost-plus contract.
1: Okay. Uh,
3: and, and 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 the the end game here is really good. The end game is that they're going to go completely commercial. By the way, I was out speaking at a, a startup in San Jose that I think is really the the the, the real place we want to go commercially. It's a small company, It's about 50 people, <clears throat> uh, mostly uh, Stanford PhDs, about 25-30 years old. And they're building uh, 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 imaging satellites with about a one-foot mirror. And the deal is they think they can build a whole satellite for $5 bucks, which is incredible, and I think they probably can. And they're going to put like 20, uh, it's called Skybox, they're going to put about 20 in orbit, get this, using Russian ICBMs. And uh, they're going to go sell these images, and the, the competitive advantage they've got over, say, Google Earth or something is that they're going to get images of things every, I don't know, 30 minutes or hour. So one of their markets, I just find this really fascinating, one of their markets is like, for example, Walmart can contract with them, and they can keep track of how many cars are in Walmart parking lots around around the world almost in real time.
1: That's, that's insane. That's
2: yeah. yeah. incredible.
3: Yeah, and that, that's cool stuff. And SpaceX, uh, if, if these early things work out, I believe they're going to be trying to find a way to make do real commercial work under space tourism i think i think the 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 big reservation the nasa old-timers like me have is when you start to take the, the step that's really part of this which is to put people in them how are we going to be sure they're safe and i think the, the the problem some of the old-timers that the agency have with this is that uh, some of us believe that if we have a failure they're gonna he's gonna come back on nasa even though the commercial company did it themselves when right you, you know when you take astronauts out. It's a, it's a national event. So I think it's an experiment worth doing. Uh, I, I, I don't quite uh, get, as, uh, as someone the other day to, wrote an article said, this is the most incredible thing since the Apollo program landed on the moon. No, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't put it in that category. It's, it's one more step in evolution of uh, gradually moving NASA out. For example, the rocket's when, I, when I, my missions launched, <clears throat> uh, commercial companies had built the rockets. I brought out my, uh, <clears throat> my my safety and mission assurance people when we went through everything to make sure that any changes they made since the last flight, we properly accounted for, this kind of thing. But but space has been largely commercial since it started. So, huh. so and, and uh,
1: I, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, um, talking about basically uh, space tourism. Do you think that that is our... Our ultimate goal right now, and do you think that that is? Uh, do you see that happening? John and I were talking about it a little bit beforehand.
3: And uh, you know, it seems it's, difficult. It's, it's, it's just the one tenth of one percent game. <laughs> you know, you you can buy a ride to the space station from Russia today. I'm in. I mean, it, that that, that <laughs> exists. I think it's twenty million bucks, and you can go get on their their <clears throat> rocket and go to the space station and no problem. ride around, take pictures out the window, this kind of thing, if you want. Wow. I think the people that are—I've heard Elon Musk talk about this, and there's a specific NASA advocate for this. If I hear them talk about what they think this is really about, they think this is an essential step to uh, an ultimate uh, populating of the solar system and maybe someday another planet around another star. That's kind of hard. The nearest star, I believe, is 20 light years away. But uh, and and you know we we got enough trouble making space to live on Earth right now. So right. But that that's the dream and the vision. And boy, I hope it works out.
1: I know. Me too. It'd be awesome.
3: <laughs> and I, I've actually advocated rather a different strategy for NASA, but I'm not been able to get any traction with it. If you're interested. Huh. You know the the agency's kind of lost right now, in my view. Uh, NASA's a a vision agency. In fact. Uh, people like DeGrasse Tyson argue that the greatest benefit NASA brings to the country is motivating young people to uh, study math and science. And every time I speak to young people, there's half a dozen of them think they're going to be an astronaut. So that I tell them to go study math and science, and they probably won't. But I think studying math and science is a good thing for them and all of us. Oh yeah. But um, President Obama made a speech at Kennedy that was as everything else today, broadly misinterpreted by partisans on both sides. He talked about a human on Mars, and that ought to be the ultimate goal. But to say that that's what he's up to is making the same mistake George Bush did by putting together a moon program. You know, John Kennedy, when he said we're going to land in 1969, I don't think he was thinking about how long it would take to build it. He was thinking about how long he expected to be president, because you've got to have somebody, you know, that's there. To keep pushing on this, right? So I've been trying to talk to agency top management. Not talk to those people. I've talked to the administrator and others to to announce that we're we're going to build the robotic infrastructure on the surface of Mars to visit it. And robotic satellites cost uh, or systems cost like some ten to one hundredth of a human flight system. And so I think you know people got excited about a lawnmower. That's what I call those little rovers on Mars. <laughs> Uh, what if we put a, a little building there, a little habitat that could could maintain a climate inside that humans could live in? Then you built. We 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 know, for example, that there's a, a whole lot of water on Mars. If we just dug a little bit deeper, is a big ice sheet. So you next thing you do, you put a little grinder and a little heater in there, and you put a little water fountain in this building, and then you build a find a way to store some rocket fuel, and then you start to build a. Some kind of a launch platform to launch someone back and and you have a robotic thing land on there and demonstrate it can fly there and fly back automatically. this is all doable and so and back to the political point, if you wanted to do a robotic thing and Obama believed he's going to be run be president for two terms which i I'm sure he probably you know plans around that even if he's not sure it's going to happen, he could have done something really important step along the way and said you know some Sometime in the future, some president's going to decide it's time to do the human, not going to be me, but I will have put an essential piece of the infrastructure down. And so that, to me, preserves the vision. It's doable within the current budget, and uh, that's what they ought to do, but I don't know.
1: Well No, I mean, that's pretty awesome because – if anybody would have a at least a, an idea, it would be you. So I'm gonna you know that's what we do is we, we talk to the smart people and take their word for it. Yeah, and Chris
2: and I Chris
1: and I actually just had this
2: conversation prior to calling you. I was talking to him about the video that's out on YouTube now explaining how they're gonna land the Mars this new Mars rover on MSL. the planet.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. and
2: just how crazy this seven-minute landing period, like all the different things they had to do with the heat shield and then the parachute, I know. the sky crane or whatever they're called. Yeah, so
3: all, all of us to look at that thing and go, what an idiotic idea. <laughs> well, and- but, but, you know, it's, it's almost certainly going to work because uh, JPL's got first-rate scientists and engineers, and so- something that is, is obviously complex as that is going to get Run to the ground. Sure. And they're they're going to analyze it. You know, the the things that bite you are the things that you don't pay attention to. The Hubble mirror flaw, in my case, was, <laughs> n- nobody ever imagined the mirror could have been misshapen. <laughs> so nobody nobody double checked it. Well, why don't so, we
2: why don't we use that as a jumping yeah, off definitely. point into your book, How NASA Builds Teams: Mission Critical Soft Skills for Scientists, Engineers, and Project Teams? Can you explain? a little bit about what you mentioned with the mirror in the Hubble and what had to be done, what your position was throughout all this, and just what resulted from it.
3: Yeah, well, I was in my eighth year, and I was the leader of the Hubble development team and uh, went down to the Cape, and it was kind of a worrisome launch. In fact, usually I, I would spend my time when I went down to launches with small missions, I'd go hobnob with the senators and congressmen. Because that was getting my budget for next year going, but in this case, I was in the blockhouse with a headset on because NASA needed someone to decide what we would do if the if the launch wasn't right. And the shuttle main engines have always been the scary part. In fact, that's another case of misguided attention. That main engines worried everybody much more than the boosters. So if we lost a main engine, there were three of them on the shuttle or during launch. I was going to have to decide whether to take the the uh, telescope back to the emergency landing site in Dakar, where it would certainly be completely contaminated and ruined in probably three or four years of disassembling it, cleaning it, and reassembling it, or leave it in a low-Earth orbit and hope you can get a shuttle up in time to reboost it. So That was my job during that thing. The uh, launch phase worked perfectly, or in NASA jargon, nominally. And then uh, we had the early deployment, and we couldn't get the solar arrays out. A really scary moment, but they finally deployed, and Everything worked, and the telescope uh, came to life, and, and we gave permission for the shuttle to release it into orbit, and the shuttle came back. So two or three months later, I go for the uh, the, the viewing of the first light, and my my boss had agreed against my uh, advice that we would make this public event. So <laughs> I went out to Goddard to operations Center and stood there with the uh, news media around the world. And, opened the door, and there came this image on the thing of some stars, and everybody cheered. So I went to the chief system engineer for Hubble, who was standing next to me, and I said, Gene, I said, those images are blurry. He said, oh, don't worry about that, Charlie. He said, uh, when we put the position, the secondary mirror, we put it a few microns out further than we thought it would be. So if we were a focus, we have to drive the stepper motor one step at a time straight in until we got it in the right place instead of having to hunt back and forth. That's how conservative the program was. So I thought, fine. So I went to Japan uh, for a little week of R&R and working with my Japanese counterparts. I had a number of agreements with them. Came back to the U.S. That's a true story. Landed in uh, St. Louis Red Carpet Lounge, and I had been out of touch with, with headquarters for a week. So I called called my office, and my secretary says, have you talked to Lynn Fisk lately, my boss? I said, no, I'll put you right through. Now, how often do you get put right through to a senior executive? <laughs> to <right>?
1: anybody's <laughs> boss, yeah.
3: It doesn't happen. The standard answer is he's in a meeting, right? right exactly. Yeah. So, so he says to me, he says, where are you? I said, I'm in the red carpet lounge in St. Louis. He said, when will you be in the office? I said, tomorrow morning. He says, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I said, why? And he said, well, he said, let me ask you a question first what do you know about spherical aberration? And I said, well, I, what I know is when an amateur builds a mirror uh, inappropriately, with, with, uh, too casually you get what's called a downturned edge, and I'm not sure you can visualize this so easily, but as you go out on the radius of the mirror, the light focuses at a different point on the optical axis than it can never focus. It's impossible to focus. Hmm. And he says to me, well, I'm glad you knew that. And I said, why, Lynn? He said, because you launched Hubble Space Telescope, with a spherically aberrated mirror. Oh no! Said, yeah, and this is this is this is the conversation with two PhDs. Oh. I said, I said, did not. He says, did so. Did not. <laughs> did so. Did not. Did so. Uh, I mean, between us, we've got ten degrees, I think. <laughs> so, right. So, so, he says to me, wherever you are, uh, put down the phone, but don't hang up, and come back with the front page of any national newspaper. No. <laughs> yeah. So I go around the lounge and find the. The St. Louis uh, Times Dispatch, I think it was, and I come back to the phone and he says, "Read it to me. What it says above the fold?" And its big black letters said, "National disaster: Hubble launched with flawed mirror." Oh
2: and wow! And he says,
3: "Now what do you say?" Uh, Ask <laughs> the God truth. I said, "Lynn, how did you guys sneak a fake newspaper into the very house no. I landed in? No. You guys are really clever." <laughs> uh. So uh, life was never the same for me after that. I was responsible for, arguably, the the biggest screw-up in the history of science.
1: And, you know, I I, I mean, I want to get into that, and I know how that shaped a lot of what, you know, the book's about and everything, but at that moment, when you think back, I mean, I think I have problems when I make a small mistake at work. What, I mean, I'd probably pass out, honestly. Like, how did you handle (laughs) that? How did you deal with that? What was the response?
3: Well, you know, later I I named this... uh, I'm sure you've heard this little joke uh, expression: "Denial's not a river in Egypt." Yes, yes, yes. I don't think I grasped it. It was too incredible. <laughs>
2: right.
3: And, uh, the uh, it it didn't sink in. And uh, at that time, we had no idea what might have caused it. Wow. So I was made a member of the failure review board, and it took months to figure out what happened. And some guy, an optical expert, on there did a calculation that said, you know, if this thing called a null corrector, which is what you use to figure these mirrors, if the guy had misspaced it by a millimeter, we'd get the effect we be seen. Now, missing a millimeter in an optical shop is like a mile. I mean, even your dentist, which just does things, you know, by with his hands and no instruments mm-hmm. to speak of, if he made a one-millimeter error, a millimeter is uh, the end of a lead pencil. I mean, if they made an error in your tooth that big, you couldn't use it. Oh, so, yeah. This was an incredible giant error. It turned out it was true, and we went and looked at what happened. And uh, the the chairman of the failure review board, uh, Lou Allen, the general the director of um, the Jet Propulsion Lab at the time, uh, he we found they went down, and interviewed the guy who had retired in, in Florida, found out he, how he'd made the error, the mistake he'd made was a stupid thing, and. Uh, I thought to myself, well, thank God, it's not a management problem. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, hadn't, it hadn't sunk into me even after months that maybe somehow I was culpable. Right. But then Lou looked deeper, and this, this is the characteristic of every failure that someone looks deeply more deeply at. He brought the board back again, and I was annoyed. I'm really tired of the little motel in Danbury, Connecticut, and plus I've got a program to run back home. And he said, I want to find out why the smart guys at Perkin Elmer never ran down a thing that had hints of a problem over and over and over. We found that there were all these tests that had hints of an error. And so he looked into it and he said, I've concluded that uh, NASA management had them under such intense, extreme pressure and duress and criticism that they didn't spend any time working on problems that they didn't believe were real. Uh, and see, the the, the the equivalent of the sky crane is the pointing system for Hubble. Hubble's a small mirror by uh, astronomical standards, it's only 96 inches, uh, 2.4 meters. And so to do its thing, it's got to point with extreme stability. You know, if you go out at night and look at a star in the sky and it's blinking, the, the, the star is not changing. The light is switching on off of your retina because of uh, unevenness in the Earth's atmosphere. Hmm. So the requirement, get this, was seven thousandths of an arc second indefinitely. Now, you don't think in thousandths of an arc second. That's the angle a human hair makes at a mile. Wow. The body actually had the point with that stability. Wow. Or the the thing was a waste. And the problem was there's no test on Earth that could verify this. You know, we don't like to fly anything without a test. In fact, I think we spend as much money testing stuff as we do building it. And so all you could do is test all the parts, put them together analytically with a big software program and predict it's probably going to work. So what happened was the, uh, the program was overrunning all the time and people were getting fired. In fact, I got, I got the job I got because they, they fired my boss for the previous Hubble overrun. And uh, so we're, and, and there's a tendency in human nature to, to blame other people when you screw up and that's what we were doing. So then Lou Allen asked another question. He said, I want to know why the uh, smart people in the science working group at NASA for the telescope who knew about spherical aberration, they were ground-based astronomers, why they didn't insist on, on running down these hints of a problem. And he learned then that Burke and Elmer never told us about any of these anomalies. Uh-huh. So when he when he went to the Congress to explain how he spent 15 years and $2 billion, which would inflate to about seven today, <laughs> And build a telescope that was useless. <laughs> didn't work <laughs> he, said, he said it was a leadership failure yeah and I was leader of the team Wow and, and believe it or not that didn't dawn on me because I and everyone else technical people are so habituated to find the technical cause and name that as the problem
1: right no, and that it's would a, be my first that, that would be my first thing but I didn't make yeah. the error I didn't cut the, the thing but <laughs> that's right but, but when, you, when that, you mention that, it it makes sense
3: the the mirror was fabricated uh, 4 years before i got there but all all these errors were found over and over and over and over it was the mirror set half a wave of error and they rationalized it away every time one of the big ones was they did a calculation that was completely wrong that when we took the mirror off of its bed of nails and put it in the uh, the flight mount which is a 3 point mount in gravity that it would deform by half a wave it's nonsense so huh <laughs> So, believe it or not, I uh, I, I covertly uh, started the mission that ultimately repaired the telescope. I got promoted to the top of NASA. And isn't it a wonderful thing that you can break something and then get promoted when you fix it?
1: Yeah, I love it. I wish my job was like that. <laughs> <laughs> i <It's great. laughs> everything in, in there. there. <laughs> well, that, hey, I mean, it, it ended up working out. And then I guess, could you talk a little bit about how that experience then, Uh, you know, what it taught you in terms of now in your book, how NASA builds teams, you use that experience, and I think it'll dawn on a lot of managers and things like that on these same mistakes can be taken into many organizations.
3: Exactly. Uh, It it turns out that social context, what I call social context now, uh, drives performance and risk overwhelmingly. There's a great story about this, in the book about Korean Airlines. It was crashing at 17 times the international norm, and it went on for years. No one knew what to do, and the reason is this very common error we make of believing its individual abilities count, and that's why we spend all these years in graduate schools, rather than team social context, and they kept testing the Korean Airlines pilots, and they all were tested fine. I mean, you test pilots in ways you can't test many other things. You put them in, you know, simulators, and they land a 747 on a, icy runway with two engines out in the fog, blah, blah, blah. Right. And finally, after years of this, somebody put an observer in the cockpit and watched what happened. And what he saw was the Koreans had imported Confucian social context into the cockpit of their airplanes. So when the captain was flying and made mistakes, the first officer couldn't say anything and it got to be embarrassing, so they they just opened up and read a newspaper while the planes flying along.
1: Yeah, you know, you know what's really funny <laughs> about that? Actually, my dad's a pilot, and he's told me that. And he said, when when he was the first officer, not the captain, he heard this, and they're all aware of it now, and they they speak their mind. I mean, it's no longer like that. Yep. If if they see a problem, it, that you have to tell them. It's actually in the in the law or ro- rules yep. or whatever.
3: Yep. Now you're absolutely right. I, I fly about a hundred thousand miles a year, so. I'm up in the cockpits of these, uh, you know, these big jumbo jets. You get on early when you've got the status I've got. (laughs) I go up in the cockpit and talk to the guys, and it's always, hey, Charlie, come on in. I'm Fred. I'm Jack. That's awesome. And sometimes they say, would you like to start the APU? Would you like to, you know, there's none of this uh, stuff you hear on the speakers when they're saying, put your seatbelt on. This is the captain.
1: Right.
3: And I ask them, I said, are you feel free to criticize each other? Oh, we're required to.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know? So, and when you talk about social context, you're you're talking about, for the listeners that aren't aware, the way the team or the way at least a few individuals on this team interact with each other and how that changes the whole, correct?
3: Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, what I'm interested in is the team's behavioral norms, their collective behaviors towards each other. And we have very short instruments that measure, take 15 minutes and measure this. Then I benchmark it against hundreds of other teams we've got like we've done this for 1500 teams now technical mostly and i can tell them what their performance is how much how efficiently they're working and what their risk posture is this is what my book's basically about i i consider discovering this um the greatest thing i've ever done in my life more important than hubble lots of people could have managed hubble but no one's been as fortunate to stumble into something that i think is as As profound as this
2: that I'm aware of. I actually work for a uh, consulting firm in Washington, D.C., and I complain about this to Chris all the time with just the team dynamics and kind of the way that, you know, you still have that top-down structure where your analysts, consultants really don't bring up their ideas or concerns or any of that kind of stuff to the managers. So especially in my line of work, I mean, besides the obvious of speak up what kind of recommendations do you give teams that work in project management and that kind of stuff i mean without giving away too much and
3: oh no there's, there's no everything's out there on my website everything's free all of our oh, wow. workshops workshop slides processes instruction manuals everything's free
1: oh and that's great and and the website by the way is the number four dash d d com.
3: actually there's an easier way to get to it uh if to you go to, to nasateambuilding.com. Oh, okay. Cool.
1: Okay. It'll awesome. get you to it. Okay. Just so
3: everything's free. Uh, when I wrote the book, I decided all this intellectual property that we used to guard so carefully, I decided to make it all free. And there's like, uh, we have a dashboard that you can get and go measure these team contacts with it. And uh, there's 110 of them operating around the world. And there's uh, there are people as disparate as uh, the largest nuclear... Utility in the world, electricity de France has our processes running in three of their factories. And someone the other day told me that uh, I, I had a slide with a 200,000-person Chinese shoe factory using them. He says, "No, I'm using them in a million-person Chinese company." Wow. So it's it's uh, it's it's really interesting system, and I'm I'm on a mission to try and not that I care to make any money on this. I'm, i like my my wife likes money, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's not about a money-making thing to try and help the world through what I think is going to be a difficult period coming up. And the only thing I can see to get us out of most of our troubles is um, enhanced technical team performance. So that's what I'm up to.
2: I was actually just going to ask you what actually drove you to the decision to release this stuff for free. Um, Because like you said, you know, so many people guard their intellectual property really close to their hearts. But what you just said, I mean, that's really impressive, and I'm kind of the same way where I think that people just need to create things and put them out for free, and the world would just, you know, benefit from the stuff because way too too many people are looking to make that quick buck or or whatever it may be. That's awesome, and hopefully, you know, a bunch of our listeners will go to the website, get that stuff for free, read the book, all that kind of
1: stuff. That'd be
3: cool. By the way, the book's got... 45 five-star Amazon reviews.
1: I, you know, I saw, we were just looking at it, and yeah. I was like, man, this thing, I mean, everybody loves it, and it's great. What, with, you know, to, to give a little teaser and everything, and, and I'm on a sales team, John's on a on a project management team, I think everybody works, or most people work in a team environment. Could you give us a quick couple of things that, that you've learned that just work well, or just some tips or advice or anything?
3: Yeah, yeah, if I, if I tell you one thing, I would say, understand that... Uh, The deepest need other people have of you, once your physiological needs are met, air, food, water warmth, that kind of thing, uh, and once you feel safe, is feeling appreciated. And so if you could do one thing differently, is to start habitually appreciating people around you. People all need it and all crave it. And if, if I had known what I know today when I was managing Hubble, and I could do one thing then, I would have given the Perkin Elmer guys more appreciation than criticism, hmm. and it would have opened things up, and someone would have told me, I believe, about these anomalous tests, and if I knew about them, we would have run them down. Wow. So if I go to a team that's broken, and they say, just tell me one thing to do, I have a module on this. You can go download the slides to teach this module on my website, too. Uh, teach them how to do this, and we do, uh, with, with teams that we do workshops for, I do an experiential exercise Where we go through the room and participants, uh, see, what's interesting about appreciation is the thing that people worry about is how do I make it authentic? So the way you make it authentic, this is how all our processes work. The the, the crucial thing is your attitude or mindset. So we first teach people how to live in the mindset of gratitude. And, of course, mindset's a choice. And all it means is focusing on what you're grateful for instead of what's annoying you. Once you do that, the appreciation experience will come automatically, and you will feel the appreciation, and then you'll express it, and it will be authentic because it is. So to begin to uh, express authentic appreciation, I I hope I'm not rambling too much no, here. No, I love
1: that. I really do. I'm thinking about in my own thing, you know, because— I, do, I mean, everybody runs into stuff that annoys them. And for some reason, that sticks with me much longer yep. than the quick wins. <laughs> and I end up, the whole day just becomes about these annoyances rather than if I look at the good things that happened. And exactly. then who helped me get there? It'd be, I don't know. So, no, you're not rambling at all. I really appreciate that.
3: So, so, a friend of mine is an FBI agent. He went up to the World Trade Center right after 9-11. And he came back. I said, what would you learn? Here's what he told me many words were spoken into the ears of the dead that they yearned to have heard while they were alive. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Big stuff. That is. So, so t- tonight after we hang up, go appreciate somebody in your life. If they're physically with you or, and, and tell them what, what you value about them and that you care about them and watch what happens.
1: I love that. and, and, you know, I know we need to be wrapping it up, and I think that's a good place to, to end it just because, like I said, you're director of NASA. You've done the, the, one of the – you know, with the Hubble, one of the biggest things we've done in science and all these things. And then you you wrote this book, How NASA, NASA Builds Teams, and it can be used by managers and, you know, companies worldwide – and in the end, the message is something that, I mean, we talk about a lot on this in terms of just, you know, connection and everything. It's really, you know, appreciate people, do right by others, things like that. And and it's amazing what will come out of it in your personal life and exactly at, at work. So um, that's work. really incredible. <laughs> that is incredible information. So, again, thank you so much for being on the show. This is awesome stuff. The book, How NASA Builds Teams, is incredible. 45, you know, of the ratings on Amazon, all five stars really great um and i saw actually i saw you're on twitter if you want to tell our listeners um you know uh your your twitter handle and again mention your website and just let them know how to find you
3: yes in fact let me think what my twitter handle is
1: <laughs> no that's all right uh, if you don't use it too much i just saw you're on there so no i,
3: I don't use it too much okay. i i i i got a lot of followers but i don't like to jam it up with a whole bunch of stuff what i, what I <laughs> use it for just if you're curious um uh, mm-hmm. Let me see if I can find it here. But what, what, what I use it for is every time I upload new – I'm just starting this. Every time I upload new information on the uh, website, I put a Twitter out that there's a new workshop slide or oh, something okay. like that. I'm, I'm Charlie Pellerin at NASA Lower Hyphen Team Build.
1: Great. Awesome. Okay. And then I know the website is – there's two. You said 4 com And the other one, what, what was the other one?
3: It's just uh, www.NASATeamBuilding, all one word, .com.
1: Perfect. All right. Well, again, thank you so much and uh, really enjoy what you're doing with this book. And best of luck on that.
3: Anything I can do for you.
1: Um, no, I mean, you know, just being on the show is, is everything uh, we yeah, ask for. We, and what we'll do is um, this episode will probably come out in about a week or two. And um, we'll let you know if you want to send that tweet out and let everybody know they can listen to you. Perfect. That always helps.
2: And Charlie, I had, a, I had a quick uh, question. Um, I know you're a busy guy and all that kind of stuff. But have you ever thought about using the, I guess, theme in this book for any other books? Like, are, Do you plan on writing anything else using this same concept?
3: no I, I I don't by the way the the um, the the book's pretty universal uh if I, if i may I, I discovered this amazing effect that these uh, assessments that take fifteen minutes boost team performance for most teams five percent every time you do it, which is like a five percent budget increase
1: right yeah.
3: I stopped and started to write this book uh, at that moment. I said this is such an incredible discovery it doesn't belong to me. it belongs to the world
1: that's awesome and
3: i uh, got i got a, I got a People told me, you know, you're a first-time author. You're not going to be able to find an agent. I got an agent in an hour in New York uh, City, A-level agent. She got Wiley to publish the book. And when I started, to when I did this, Wiley said to me, "You need to write this book and focus it on technical minds because the, if you want to go into the, like the whole self-help market, there's a bazillion out there, and nobody on the on the planet speaks as clearly to technically educated people as you do." Right. So that's why I wrote it the way I did. And I've talked to them about writing a more general book. And what they've come back with is I don't have the platform for it. So, hmm. um, but what I am doing, I'm writing, I've got the equivalent of another book called The Fifth Force. And it's also free on my website. So you can go Love read it. that.
1: You're just giving it all away. Well, you know, we'll <laughs> take it. I know our listeners will too. So, um, again, thanks so much. And I'm really glad you're doing all this. We appreciate it. And uh, best of luck.
3: I've enjoyed it. Thank you both.
1: All right, Charlie.
3: Have a good evening. You
1: too. You do the same. Bye-bye.
3: <laughs> Bye-bye.
2: Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Charlie Pellerin. Hope you realize that even though you make a two to $3 billion mistake, there's still opportunity to do good things, to do great things. We've learned that talking to Charlie. He's put all kinds of stuff out there. He just wants the world to be
1: a better place now, so... Hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, go... Take what you can. Go appreciate somebody at your yes. job. And, and when you think about it, if your boss came over to you and just sit, seriously sat down and said, look, you've been working hard, you've been doing well for the company, honestly, I see it, you know, just want to say thanks. Wouldn't you be like, okay, first of all, what the hell just happened? Yeah. And second of all, you'd work a little harder. It's like a free boost, you know, if he if he actually meant it. So it's it's crazy hearing somebody like Dr. Pellerin That's his main piece of advice and really enjoyed it. Hope you guys did too. Just to wrap it all up, make sure to tune in, subscribe to us on iTunes, and uh, if you want to buy anything off Amazon, make sure you use our link, which is at smartpeoplepodcast.com. It's how we got these new mics, and we're shooting for a new soundboard eventually. Maybe we'll get that in 2013.
2: Yeah, follow us on Twitter, Smart People Pod. If you want to give Stemp a call on his uh, cell phone, go ahead and do that too. It's
1: (laughs) 911. No, no. Just kidding. All right, make sure to tune in. We're doing this again on a weekly uh, basis. We're back in action. Season two, Smart People Podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a good morning, afternoon, or night. I love how podcasts are not (laughs) time-sensitive.
2: Goodbye.